Eric, they yes, say Bill. celebrities are people just like us. I've heard that. I don't know. I think celebrities, you know, they, they live in a different world than we do. I totally believe that. I, yeah, 100%. <laughs> However, there are lots of celebrities who have seen ghosts, an alien, Bigfoot. And I would think in a, in a high visibility situation like they're in, sometimes you wouldn't want to necessarily share those stories. Yeah, that could ruin your career. But a lot of celebrities do. They're pretty open about it. And so tonight, we're going to talk about celebrity paranormal tales. Stories from celebrities of the strange and unusual. I like it. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten, and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Now, Eric, last night I decided, and I didn't tell you yet. Oh, I hate surprises, Bill. But when you do, anytime in this episode, when you read a direct quote, you have to do an impression of the celebrity. Well, I was going to do air quotes no, for you our listeners so they could not see that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I, I have no, do an impression. I have no intention of doing any impressions tonight. <laughs> it may happen on you, accident. You just scolded me on another podcast episode where I was singing and you said we can't do singing, but now you want to do impressions. Well, the reason we can't sing is because neither one of us is a singer. Oh. It's not that we can't sing on the Man, podcast. I feel dished there. It, it's not that we can't sing on the podcast. It's that we literally can't sing. We don't want to record it when we <laughs> sing on the podcast. I gotcha. Okay. Well, of course, in my realm of existence, when you're thinking celebrities, I came across Star Wars and in particular, Carrie Fisher. She did have a story. I, I didn't relate it. I saw it. And, and it's a good thing I didn't grab that one because it was mine. To do it. it was mine. Carrie Fisher, obviously, author, screenwriter, actress. Princess best, Leia. Best known for Princess Leia in Star Wars. And if you don't know that and you're a listener, shame on you. And apparently she loves to swear. She was a very vulgar woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've seen a lot of I've seen of a clips. lot of her stand-ups and stuff. Yeah, yes. Well, she lived in a very old home in Hollywood. This home was once uh, owned by Betty Davis. And Betty Davis uh, stated that she bought it from the man who played the ship captain in the movie King Kong. So this, I mean, this house has history. It goes back. Now, Carrie Fisher had a close friend. His name was Greg Stevens. Now, this is her description of him, which I thought was very interesting. But she says, I will describe him as this, a Republican gay drug addict. And I thought, wow, um, that's, that's. There's at least two words you can't use in the same sentence there. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Republican and gay are not allowed. That you can't. Thing. That doesn't even go together. <laughs> and that's what she said. It just makes him such a fun, unique spirit. No kidding. I, yeah, I was like, okay, I got to include that. Now he he was estranged from his family uh, in L.A. Can't imagine why. Yeah. But the two, Carrie and he, became uh, good friends. Now Carrie explained Greg came out to her house for the Academy Awards. He arrived on a particular Friday, and he wanted to come and take in some of the parties surrounding the event, which can you imagine the Academy Awards in Hollywood and all the oh, it's, you know, it's celebrity parties insane. and stuff? Oh, my gosh. It would, absolutely, yeah. It would, it would melt the minds of people like <laughs> you and I. Now, 
Carrie did attend some of these same parties uh, that night, but decided, you know, she's had enough. She said, I'm going to go ahead and go home. You know, Greg, take your time and stay a bit longer. So a few hours later, he came back to Carrie's house where he was staying with his assistant, uh, a female. Now, as it turned out, Greg and Carrie decided to sleep in the same bed together because Judy, his assistant, was going to be staying in the one guest room that Carrie had that normally Greg stayed in. So it was like, okay. Now, Carrie did not know Judy. It didn't sound like remotely at all. So she offered the sleeping arrangement, not thinking much of it because Greg normally stayed in the guest room. This was his first and last time he would ever sleep in her room. Carrie says she awoke in the middle of the night and she noticed that Greg was not moving or breathing. She tried her best to revive him, shook him, screamed at him, but he died in her bed that night. It was, of course, horrible. She called 911, but by then she was absolutely paralyzed with fear. Now, Greg reportedly died of a heart attack in which she blames herself. She said, He was in my guard watching. I knew he had drug issues and such. He reached out to me, wanted a safe place to stay. I should have done something earlier. I have failed my friend. I've failed him. Now, afterwards, she reported that there was a strong presence that she felt in the house, not particularly just in the bedroom, but in the old house as a general. Now, she went on to joke She just felt it was Greg. She said, I knew it. It was just that weird uniqueness about him to the point where she said, I got to the point I'd come home and I'd be like, hey, Greg, I'm home. You know, she would come in the front door. The noises and voices then started as she almost kind of fueled the fire or the power. She said she started hearing the voices that sounded like Greg and at first could only be heard by Carrie. Now, a short time later, Carrie started dating a man that she would have over to the house, and she tried to explain what she felt and what she had heard, but he quickly dismissed it. That is, until he himself started hearing the noises and the voices. So he became a believer. Now, one night, she was in her bedroom, the same that Greg died in, and it was very late at night, and she was writing. Now, Carrie says that she had a gag toy that her and some of her closest friends uh, had and often kind of played with as they were writing and stuff. It had a little push button on it, and it would trigger and say just really rude and crude things. And Well, and again, that seems like her kind of comedy. Yeah. And one of the sayings was, are you talking to me or are you effing kidding me? I mean, this type of you know rudeness. She had put it up in a closet in the guest room where Greg had left some of his clothes. And it was actually adjacent connecting to uh, her room. Now, while she was in her own bedroom late at night, she was writing and, and she began to hear it yelling out these type of obscenities and comments. And it continued for quite a a time during the night. She was actually quite frightened. While it could have been the batteries going dead as she's trying to reason with herself, she felt it was Greg himself trying to communicate with her. And it was like it was plateauing. It was elevating each time, you know, because it kept saying one thing that it got stuck on out of all the sayings. And it kept saying over and over, are you talking to me over and over and over? Now, she finally got up enough courage. She walked down the hallway to the guest bedroom, opened the closet, and she found the gag toy, which did not play, did not make a noise. So she's examining it. She's holding it in one hand, and she's going through the drawer and looking at some of Greg's stuff. And then all of a sudden, are you talking to me? It goes off again in her hand. She's startled. She drops it, freaks her out. And at this point, she yells out, you know, Greg, stop it. This is not funny. However, she says this was exactly the type of behavior that you would expect from Greg. 
ironically, after she yelled and said, stop it, this isn't funny, it didn't go off the rest of the night. She shared this with one of her closest colleagues at work, who was a self-proclaimed psychic. Now, this individual informed her, I believe you. I believe everything you're saying. The psychic explained, his life was cut short. He found happiness and comfort at your house. You opened those doors, made him feel welcome. So it would stand to reason why he would try to stay. After that, Carrie felt more comfortable and said it took many, many months, but Greg finally seemed to move on. I believe I read somewhere that she would respond to uh, physical touches and she'd be like, leave me the F alone. Like, <laughs> Again, known for swearing, yes. Yeah. No, if you've ever seen any anything where she's like being interviewed candidly, she was, she's funny, but she's- Potty was, mouth. Yeah, foul mouth. <laughs> Little princess. She's a Disney princess, by the that way. Was, uh, well, it was one, I think there was, um, Mark Hamill was doing some kind of tribute and that was one of his things. He was talking about how, how potty mouth she was and <laughs> that was how he was always going to remember that she's down there in heaven. Like I made it first. motherfucker. <laughs> so, I think so you've got a couple. My stories are a little shorter, uh, more anecdotal. So I think every time you do one, I'm going to do two. The first one is be, uh, from Keanu Reeves or Keanu. You know, he's known for being John Wick and the Matrix and Bill and Ted. You know, I think everybody loves great, great actor. Keanu Reeves and the fact that he doesn't seem to get any older. Although, if you watch some John Wick movies, time's he, catching up a little it's bit. It's catching up. He also is known, though, to live a very humble lifestyle. Very humble man. Very yeah. good. And very, very good guy it, from he, all accounts. He is one that it didn't seem like fame has went to his head. Yeah. So, he claims he saw a ghost when he was a child in New York City. and He related the story on Jimmy Kimmel Live in 2014. And I just went ahead and quoted the story since that seemed like the easiest way to do it here. I'm probably like seven years old. We'd come from Australia. Renata, our nanny, in the bedroom. My sister is asleep. She's sitting over there. I'm hanging out. There was a doorway. And all of a sudden, this jacket comes waving through the doorway. This empty jacket. There's no body. There's no legs. It's just there. And then it disappears. I was a little kid and I thought, and I was, I want to do the whoa quote. <laughs> He's like, I was a little kid and I thought, okay, that's interesting. And I look over at the nanny, and she's making this terrified face. And I'm like, oh, wow, so that was real. Wow. <laughs> this one's a little longer. It's from Ariana Grande. Now, I know we've talked about the celebrities that we chose. I think yours were more 80s celebrities in some <laughs> cases. You went back a little further. Hey, I got Jackie Gleason on my list, so who am I to talk to? <laughs> um, I, I kind of tried to avoid the more recent crop of celebrities, especially teenage celebrities. But I liked Ariana Grande's story here. I thought it was pretty good. All right. So, in the 2013 interview with Complex, she was asked if she'd ever seen an alien. Seems like a weird interview question. Maybe they, they were leading to something here. And she replied with, quote, not an alien, but I've had a ghost slash demon experience. And then she went on to relate the story, which happened in Kansas City, which is another reason I chose this not one. Too far not away. too far away. Uh, said she went to a haunted castle, and she was very excited for the experience. Hold on. We have a haunted castle in Kansas City? We're going to have to look that up. I definitely. The next night, they went to Stoll Cemetery, which Stoll Cemetery apparently has quite the reputation. I was unfamiliar with it. I'm going to have to look into it. Uh, she claims the cemetery is known as one of the seven gates to hell, and that when the Pope is flying over America, the plane has to deviate to go around Stoll Cemetery. Wow. So I have not heard of it. About yeah, this? like I need to look into this a little bit. Uh, so when they went there, she claimed that she began to feel sick, had this overwhelming feeling of negativity. And as they're driving around, they began to smell this sulfurous smell in the car. And then suddenly, in the car with them, with the windows rolled up, is a fly. Now, we know flies are associated with that, the sulfur smell. Mm. This is, these are signs of demonic activity. 
So she's she's like, no, 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 we got to go. This is getting scary. <laughs> she rolls down the window as they leave, and she yells out, we apologize. We didn't mean to disrupt your peace. And then I guess as they're leaving, she took a selfie of her and her friends in the back of the car. Behind her and her friends in the window, there are three distinct faces. Textbook demon faces. Ooh. Horns, scary eyes, teeth, pointy features. Did you I get mean, to see this picture? No, it's not on. It, oh, okay. it not, did not have the picture out there. Okay. She attempted to delete it. But every time she did, her phone would glitch, quote unquote, would Air not quotes, allow her sorry. to delete it. And so she's like, later on, she's talking to her manager about it and all this weird stuff. Said weird things began to, to, to occur as long as she had this picture on her phone. And so her manager's like, okay, I need to see this picture. So she goes to send it to her manager, right? She gets an error stating, quote, this file cannot be sent. It is 666 megabytes in size. <laughs> oh, the file six, is too six, big. Six interesting i i thought multiple that one, levels yeah there's like things in there that i had not heard of that, that i think we are worth looking into definitely and you know that's not too far from home yeah. kansas city's what two three hours three hours yeah that's not too bad well the next story i have is uh rue mcclanahan um, obviously emmy winning actress probably best known for her role as blanche on the golden girl the, the southern one yes the southern bale i remember that now she developed feelings for a man named rill in particular, but also a woman named Christina. They were childhood friends, uh, later moving to Hollywood together. For many years, they were un, an inseparable trio of friends. Through all of Rue's marriages and divorces, she quotes that she always fell back on him as the one true friend that will always be there. Now, again, that, that quote, true friend, I'm, I'm thinking of the Golden Girl theme Thank song. You for being Thank a you friend. for being a friend. I mean, that just comes to my mind. But uh, as fate would have it, Rill developed a terrible palsy disease. Uh, it quickly led to first memory loss and then finally motor loss. She states that she could barely stand the thought of imagining living a life without him. Now, I will stress, I didn't get any love attraction. This was just truly a boyhood and uh, Christine, the, the girl, childhood friends that had just got that kindred spirit bond. Uh, so I wanted to stress that, but she could barely stand the thought of living a life without him because she always fell back and relied on him and he was always there for her. Now, one day in particular, she remembers real. He was no uh, longer able to talk at this point in his life, but he was still alert and seemed to be having a good day. Uh, she visited him there in the, the room and she, he ended up staying with his, uh, at his mother's house there for his last uh, few months of his life. But they had clutched each other's hands as they sat there. She sat on the bed, and he was in a wheelchair. Now, Rue looked into his eyes, and he into hers. And they kind of looked at each other, and he smiled. And at whatever point, she says later on in an interview, she goes, I guess I did the strangest thing I've probably ever done. She said, I had a very weird request of her friend. So she says, whenever the time comes and you leave me, will you please give me a message that you're still here with me? He seemed to crack a smile again, and Rue went on to say, I remember when we were young and we used to play with chemistry sets, and we did those little electronic school play sets. I think that would be neat. If you could use electricity somehow to possibly send me a message, send me a sign that you're still here. He seemed to kind of nod as much as he could in his delinquished state. Now the night finally came when Rill would pass away. At the time, as I stated, he was living in his mother's house. 
Both Christina, the girl childhood friend, and Rue were gathered around his bed along with his mother, as they knew the time was close and they were trying to say their goodbyes. Now, many times throughout the night, they had to check over and over to see if Rill was even still breathing, thinking many times he had passed, but he was still there. Had to have been a terrible long night. I mean, just basically dreading what we knew was coming. The time finally came, but uh, before anyone realized it, Christina and Rue uh, had decided to go downstairs. Uh, Christina had decided that, you know, she had other appointments in the day. And they thought maybe he would last throughout the night, so she was going to go ahead and go home. Rill's mother joined Rue, uh, and they went to the kitchen to get a cup of coffee and basically just try to come to copes with what was going to happen. Now, as they entered the kitchen for a cup of coffee, at the same time, uh, you know, Christina was leaving, they flipped the light switch, and there were nine bulbs recessed into the ceiling. As they flipped that, the bulbs blinked several times, and all nine burned out at the same time. That's weird. I don't care who you are. That's weird. Rill's mother said, that's odd. Sure. Maybe one, two bulbs, but all nine. Now, Rue kept secret that she had requested a favor of her son at the time, so she did not share that information with her mother. They had learned as they returned upstairs that, in fact, Rill had passed away just moments after the women had left to go downstairs. Now, at this, Rue kind of developing, you know, how she's going to move on in life without her, his own mother coping with it. Rue decided to email Christina uh, because hoping not to awaken her if she had, had gotten home and, you know, made a try to get some sleep. So emailed her and uh, was just sharing some stories about how she already missed him and, and, and his passing. And as she started typing out about Rill passing, the computer developed static, she said, some type of a weird interference. To the point as she would type words, some of the letters would backspace and making it very difficult for her to finish this weird. email. Very weird. And so she couldn't figure out why all of a sudden this would happen. I mean, this was her laptop or her computer she, she used and had never done it before. So she decided, you know, heck with it. I'll just wait till the morning and I'll pick up the phone and I'll just call Christina, you know, personally and talk to her. So the morning finally came. Christina and Rue had a good conversation on the phone. And eventually, Christina stated, uh, you know, she goes, I got to tell you, Rue, I, I didn't sleep well last night at all. And, of course, Rue asked, well, well why? What was, what was wrong besides the obvious? And she says, well, the strangest thing happened to me. She goes, last night, she goes, I know it was late, you know, when I left and, and I got home. I, I dinnered through the kitchen and uh, I flipped on the kitchen lights. And yet again, we had recessed lighting. She said, I have 20 bulbs in my kitchen. They blinked twice and then all burned out at the same time. Wow. 20 bulbs. Okay. I'm like, this is, this is getting hard to believe, folks. Uh, very similar, obviously, to what Rue and Rill's mother had experienced in, in the mother's kitchen. Now, Rue immediately said, uh, at first she remembers being startled, but then almost thrilled. She immediately shared with Christina the favor she had asked of Rill, which she hadn't told Christina about or anyone else about until that point. And it was that weird static then that started on the phone and disrupted the conversation as they started trying to explain more of the details. Finally, Rue and them just, you know, Rue invited Christina, if you have time, just come by the house tonight. Let's talk in person. This has got to be easier. And they laughed and joked it off. So I'm assuming Christina had her obligations, her appointments, work, whatever, came home to Rue's house uh, that night. 
And uh, they had a good long talk, a, a long cry, and the, and the ladies agreed. This was definitely Rill's style. He was playful. They could see him in these actions that were happening to them. About a week after Rill's death, Rue was going through some of his things, helping uh, his mother get them boxed up and, and organized. And out of the corner of her eye, peripheral vision, she seen a figure sitting over in the living room in a wheelchair. She said, I, I paused, and I was almost afraid to turn and look that he would disappear. Finally, I noticed he was still there out of looking out of the side of my eyes, so I turned to face him, and he smiled at me. Said he was in a lot better health. Definitely it made, him, made her think, uh, you know, months before his, his passing. And uh, he got excited and even smiled and said, it ain't no big deal. It ain't no big deal. And repeated this several times. Now, Rue felt comfort in those words as she began to see him smile. And in her mind, she said, I knew this was his way of saying, me passing, it's not that big a deal. I'm still right here for you. Wow, that was neat. Well, strangely enough, I have probably one of the perfect celebrities here to be talking about the unexplained, the paranormal. It's none other than Dan Dan Aykroyd. I bet you. Okay. SNL cast member known for his comedy movies. Who you gonna call? Yeah, I was gonna say, probably best known <laughs> as one of the Ghostbusters, and, and more recently for his Crystal Skull Vodka, which is packaging Crystal Skulls to, you know, associate it with the Crystal Skulls that have been found around the, the world. And even featured on the, the series of Growing Belushi, if you happen to be into that. Dan Aykroyd, probably one of my favorites from back in that time frame. Now, he's had several experiences, ghosts, UFOs, men in black, and so I got two or three of those here. Of course, he's had several experiences with ghosts, and his family's even been associated with, with that phenomenon for a while. I believe his grandfather and his father both investigated those. I think his father actually wrote a book about ghosts. Oh, wow. So, he's, I mean, it's just been a family thing a long for, line. for Dan Aykroyd. Now, he's seen things moving around on counters, doors opening and closing on their own. His staff has had experiences, including being directly touched only to turn around and have no one be there. So it's pretty common. Now, one vivid experience he happens to remember happened while he was home alone in his Hollywood home. The home supposedly had multiple spirits, including Mama Cass. Ooh. I believe it's where she passed away. So he would later say that he didn't think, however, this encounter was with Mama Cass. Uh, to quote Dan Aykroyd, I think it was the other guy. I was alone in the house, and I decided to take a nap. I closed the door to the bedroom, but didn't lock it. I woke up. I saw the door open. And I rolled over and looked at the bed, and I saw the depression in the mattress, like someone was, was getting in there. And I thought, I'm just going to roll over and snuggle up next to it. <laughs> I'd be surprised if I was his type, but when you're dead, you'll take what you can get. <laughs> that sounds like Dan Aykroyd, if you ask me. He's had multiple encounters with UFOs, uh, one in particular during a trip to upstate New York in the 80s. He woke up in the middle of the night and supposedly rolled over, and he told his wife, they're calling me. I want to go outside. Something outside wants me to come out and see. Now, his wife convinced him to go back to sleep. When they woke up in the morning, the news was reporting that thousands of people felt that they had felt the very same thing the night before, and that those that had gone outside had witnessed a several-mile-high spiraling pink vortex in the sky. And this happened all across Canada, New York, and Vermont. Wow. So, now, I, like, I found this story particularly interesting. In 2002, he was working on a documentary with the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, they were going to talk about UFOs, and he had a lot of people that were related to the UFO field, a lot of experts in the field, 
you know, just we're going to have a lot of good information, you know, on, on the phenomenon. Now, they had filmed eight episodes and they were getting close to being shown on the air. They were getting close to their air date. And then one day after filming, he stepped outside for a cigarette and to answer a phone call from a friend when he noticed a black SUV parked down the street. And standing outside the SUV was a tall man dressed all in black. And this dude was giving him the stink eye. Uh-oh. Just like Pesky eyeballing him. black guys. Yeah. Uh, so he turned to go back inside, but figured he'd give one last look to this, you know, this dude. And when he looks back, the man and the SUV are gone. So he's like, okay. Two hours later, they're all gathered up. And Aykroyd and the cast are told, the show's been canceled. We're <laughs> never going to air a single episode. And to this day, no one has ever told him why the show was canceled. That is strange beyond belief, yes. Now, he does say he's seen four UFOs. And he thinks most aliens are simply tourists coming here to look at this beautiful planet. However, he also thinks that there are some out there that would love to impregnate a woman and then produce an alien hybrid baby. And that there are some that are here to harm us with some nefarious purpose or possibly just to use us as lab rats. Now, well, no, then. Yeah. Now, uh, Peter Jackson, known as uh, director of Lord of the Rings. Absolutely. He's made some horror movies in his day, but, you know, I'd say most known at this point for Lord of the Rings. He had a really creepy encounter with a ghost that he related to the Telegraph in 2010. He was staying in an apartment across from the St. James Theater in London when he woke up one night and there was a figure in the room. It was a a very, very scary uh, woman. Her face like split open like in a silent scream and like almost accusatory, like, you know, blaming him. Uh, He said she was probably around 50 years old, was terrified, said she was right at the end of the bed. And then she glided across the room and disappeared through a wall. So when his wife came to bed later, he told her what what he saw. And without any kind of reaction, without anything else, she goes, was it the woman with the screaming face? Oh, she'd seen it. Yeah. He said they'd never spoken about it before, but supposedly she had seen the same ghost about two years earlier. Now, he started looking into it. It turns out while they were living there, the St. James Theater was being restored. And we know restoration and spirits. Stirs up those spirits. Uh, some, some claim to have seen the same ghost in other residences all up and down the street, but they believe it was that of a woman who had committed suicide after a bad vaudeville review. Jackson said, quote, they say she manifests herself in the theater with a screaming face. Sometimes she's seen the same ghost. She needs to learn to smile a little. <laughs> Turn that frown upside <laughs> down. My next story is uh, involving Lindsay Wagner, uh, of course, from Bionic Woman fame, you know, associated with the Six Million Dollar Man. Now, Lindsay explains, quote, unquote, I grew up in the 60s. Therefore, paranormal was pretty common topic in our household, but it wasn't because of fear or disbelief. It was just accepted amongst my family. Now, during her time of filming The Bionic Woman in the 1970s, she had a boyfriend uh, who was a musician and was a member of a popular band. He had been invited to uh, play with the Allman Brothers in a concert down in South Carolina in a little town called Love Valley. Now, it just so happened that the mayor's dream, the mayor of Love Valley, he had uh, just experienced Woodstock, you know, the summer before. (laughs) And in his mind, he was going to put Love Valley on the map and he was going to have his own version of Woodstock. Well, no no one ever learns that you're not going to recapture that. You're never going to recapture that. That was learned with the later Woodstock, <laughs> if, if by apparent all reason. How I, you know, anyway, the couple was taken out uh, there. They decided they you know, absolutely were going to open for the Allman Brothers. I thought that was cool. And Lindsay went along in tow with her boyfriend. 
they said that they were to be put up in a very rural area down a, a dirt road where a very beautiful old Victorian white house uh, was. And they said, this will be where you'll be staying for the week uh, prior and, and during and after the concert. Now, Lindsay described this house. She says it literally looked like it was right off the uh, prop set of, of a movie. She said it was beautiful. It was decorated with period antiques. Uh, it looked like you stepped back in time. And, uh, you know, she said in the South during the summer, it's very humid. Oh. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so they opened their windows as a customary, uh, you know, and they could hear the crickets and the frogs and the such. And she really enjoyed that, you know, coming from the Hollywood scene that was kind of going back to her roots. And she remembers wandering through the house, enjoying the breeze and the sounds of the rural South atmosphere. Now, keep in mind, all the band members were all staying here. It just wasn't uh, Lindsay and her boyfriend. Uh, but she found many antiques in the house, and she collected antiques at the time, but was found herself really, for whatever reason, being drawn to a particular Hoosier-style cabinet in the kitchen. Now, I thought about this, and I thought some of our listeners may not know what a Hoosier cabinet is. No, I have no idea. Okay. We used to own an antique shop, so I take this stuff for granted, but you know, <laughs> a Hoosier cabinet is generally a cabinet with like a porcelain tabletop a work area, and above that, it might be a flour sifter where you could grind flour or a meal, uh, so you had some containers, usually copper, brass, above that, and then above that on the upper part was usually a couple doors that had glass, and you could uh, display some of your finer china dishware of the time. Down underneath the porcelain surface where you could roll out like biscuits and pie crust and such uh, were deep uh, compartments where your pots and pans was kept. It was just a real compact, almost every Victorian household had a Hoosier cabinet in their kitchen. So that's what a Hoosier cabinet is. That's the history lesson for today, kids. <laughs> but uh, she was really drawn to this particular Hoosier cabinet. But she noticed, for whatever reason, the top doors that normally had the glass, the glass was missing. And, you know, obviously she kind of, she wrote it off that sometime it must have been broken and they just never replaced it. But that was what would protect your fine china and stuff and, you know, keep the dust off of it and keep it from getting broken. But she said it was a flash of time as she was standing there and she touched the Hoosier cabinet that she envisioned the family that built the house. She described that there was a couple children. She saw a mom and a dad and then it was like fast forward and there'd be like another blur. But anyhow, she was like, fully enveloped. She could experience this family here in the kitchen. And she just kind of laughed and she really enjoyed that. Now she describes that she is a very light sleeper, but enough time had passed. So she said, I went upstairs, joined my boyfriend and, and I decided we needed to get some sleep. However, she uh, quickly got up out of bed when she heard what she thought was one of the band members seeming to be having some type of problems or a commotion on the floor downstairs. She got up, you know, kind of went down the steps and was, you know, kind of eerie, kind of looking. And she thought he was talking to himself in the hallway, which obviously seemed a bit odd. So she approached him and is everything okay? And, and he says, I'm trying to get in the bathroom. And she turns and she looks and the bathroom's right there at the end of the hall and the door's wide open. And she goes, what do you mean that just walk in there? The door is open. And he goes, no, you try it. And she laughs. And so she goes, I stepped through the doorway, but she said it was like I was surrounded by like a saran wrap, a pressure like almost prevented me from going through the doorway. Now, she said, I pushed through and she said, when I did the strangest thing happened, she goes, I had a static charge of electricity that made my hair stand up. She goes, the only reason I know this was I was looking at myself in a mirror 
as I was going to the bathroom and my nightgown blew upwards. I'm, I'm picturing the whole Marilyn Monroe. Well, settle down, buddy. Yeah, settle down over there. But the, the <laughs> band member behind may have got a little peep show. We're, we're not going to, you know. Who's it's not part of the story. Not part of the story. So she found herself in there and she said, I felt like I was in water. The whole bathroom had this thick, ambient, you know, atmosphere. And she goes, I quickly decided I didn't want to stay here. So again, I made my way out the door. She goes, it was just as difficult to leave the bathroom through the door threshold as what it was to enter. And, you know, they kind of laughed and they said, yeah, there's another bathroom on the other floor. Let, you know, go, go use that. <laughs> and they kind of scoffed it off. Well, she again returned back to bed and she said later that same night, terrible commotion in the upstairs attic. And she said it sounded like someone was beating and or dragging furniture across the, the wood floor up there. And she said, I, I know there was another band member that was up there without getting too illicit. I, she thought maybe he had brought someone home and, you know, just kind of blew it off and they laughed about it until the next morning. And her and the band members were all going down the steps and going to go get a, a, a breakfast. And they were talking, hey, did you hear all that commotion from upstairs and, you know, so-and-so's bedroom in the attic? And everybody was like, oh, my gosh, yeah, it woke me up. I was on the first floor. And they're all laughing. Well, then this particular band member sets up on the couch covered with a blanket and he goes, what are you talking about? And they're like, oh yeah, we heard you upstairs last night. You know, where's she at? You know, and all this. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I literally fell asleep on the couch down here last night. I didn't even <laughs> go upstairs. And to which point, you know, they're all looking at each other and they're like, well, somebody's upstairs. And he goes, well, okay, that's kind of weird because my stuff's up there. Let's, let's go look. So the whole band, and I'm, I'm envisioning all of this, the whole band members, you know, walking up the steps, they go up there to the attic and they turn the door and, and they open up the uh, attic bedroom and nothing seems awry. Nothing seems knocked over. Nothing is stolen, missing, moved, like nothing occurred. But they all said, except for the band member who was supposed to be staying in it that was on the couch, that they heard all this noise all night long. So at this point, they're beginning to think, okay, this house is haunted. Are we sure we want to stay here for a week? This was the first night. And they're like, well, I mean, they are very accommodating. It's a very nice house. They had even arranged for a designated driver to come multiple times throughout the day to pick up and drop off people from the band, taking them to town, trying to welcome them to the community and, <laughs> you know, everything. So they decided, okay, it, it's only a week. We're, we're going to tough it out. We're, we're going to make this. Well, as it uh, worked out, they decided they were a little bit embarrassed, so they, they didn't go to town and they didn't really talk about it except for amongst themselves. However, Lindsay Wagner and her boyfriend had this driver that came out and picked them up one night, and he was uh, a native to the area. He seemed to be kind of a historian, and he brings up the topic. So, anything weird happened to you last night? And they kind of look at each other. One of those kind of deals. Yeah, and they're like, well, what, what do you mean? And he goes, oh, well, nothing. I'm, you know. Just, just asking, small talk. The boyfriend speaks up and is like, well, you don't just open up a conversation like that and, you know, not say anything. Do you know something? And he goes, well, I know all the history of the house. And they're like, oh, really? And they get to talking to him on, on the drive to town, which seems like probably a 20-minute drive or something. And they find out that the people who built the house was quite wealthy and they had multiple children, but one girl in particular was born with e extreme mental illness. As she got into her teenage years, this worsened and worsened to a point that this family, again, being well-known, well fortune would invite people out for 
fancy lavish parties and dinner parties and such. One particular night, this driver is explaining as the story goes, the teenage girl came into the kitchen where some servants were preparing the meal for the night and she wanted some. And the mother said, no, this is for our guests tonight. She got so mad that she picked up something and busted the glass out of a Hoosier cabinet doors. Lindsay, of course, picked up on this immediately and then said she flung herself into the Hoosier cabinet and drug out all the china and threw onto the floor, breaking it, which, of course, made mommy and daddy upset. Well, yeah. So the servants and I, from what the historian said, possibly the father, drug her upstairs to the attic where that was her bedroom, the furthest point away from the dining room downstairs where she was locked in her bedroom. Now, this is very similar to the Limp Mansion story that I'm we did. sure she probably threw a fit. Beat on the doors, jumped on the bed, flipped over chests, you know, all the same type of, of things and noises that they had heard throughout the night. Now, Lindsay and the boyfriend kind of, oh, well, that's interesting, but didn't <laughs> lead into, that's exactly what happened. So, they go to town, they come back that night, they're eager to share this information with the band members as, you know, dusk is coming and they're getting ready to spend night number two in the creepy haunted white Victorian house. And as they're in the living room, they start hearing this god-awful noise of breaking glass in the kitchen. So immediately they all just like race towards the kitchen. And sure enough, bowls, glasses, and dishes are being thrown out of the Hoosier cabinet, being broken on the wow. floor. Exactly as the historian almost predicted would would occur so at this point they're looking at each other they are screaming Lindsay says we ran out of the house we nearly tore the screen door off the front we were afraid to even stay on the porch so we hovered beneath an old tree in the front yard and debated on trying to sleep in the barn or where else (laughs) we're going to sleep finally they got enough courage and the next day they go in the same historian the driver you know said so Anything happened last night? Almost on key. And Lindsay then kind of blurted out, you know, here's what's happened and all this. And he goes, it's okay. She won't hurt you. She has always been put down, shunned, you know, rejected. She just wants to be known. This is her house. You're staying there. And Lindsay said that really hit a key with me because, again, I was brought up, you know, talking about the haunted. It was well accepted. So she said, when we got home that night, we gathered around on the front porch and it's like, okay, we're going to go in. We're going to do this together. And we want to announce ourselves and we want to thank the girl calling her by name for allowing us to stay in the house. After they did that, the remaining three or four nights, nothing occurred whatsoever and everything seemed to be fine. The little girl was just trying to get attention and wanted, you know, reassurance that this is her house and, you know, she was being accepted. So I thought that was kind of a, a quaint, cute story. Oh. Well, I have a couple of short encounters here. Sirs Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen. Great group there, by the way. I mean, um, you know them as Professor X and Magneto. And obviously, you know, Patrick Stewart, Captain Picard, Ian McKellen, Gandalf, and and all the other things he's done. These guys have very, very long careers. They are very good friends by all accounts. I believe Ian McKellen was the officiant at Patrick Stewart's wedding. So uh, these guys, you know, just very, very good friends. So the Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds and Hugh Jackman of our of the era. <laughs> so while performing the play Waiting for Godot at the Theater Royal Haymarket, 
The two actors claimed to have seen the ghost of John Baldwin Buckstone. Now, he was an actor and manager at the theater in the mid-19th century and a friend of writer Charles Dickens. They said he was standing just off stage wearing a beige coat and twill pants. Stewart told the Telegraph, I think Buckstone appears when he appreciates things, and we viewed it as a positive thing. Put a nice positive twist yeah. on a paranormal encounter. Now, Rob Lowe, moving right along, Rob Lowe, he was kind of a, a heartthrob in the 80s there, and, and well, I'll be honest, just still a very good-looking guy, even though he's gotten a little older. Uh, I probably remember him most for Parks and Rec, the the sitcom. Right, right. But he's been all over TV and movies. I mean, he, he's a big-time celebrity. He, he advertises for Atkins, I believe, now, so you may have seen him in those Atkins commercials. Atkins Diet, yep. Uh, now, he claims to have had what he thought was going to be a fatal encounter with Bigfoot. A fatal encounter with he Bigfoot. He thought he was going to die. He Not thought just he was going to get murdered by Bigfoot. going to get murdered by Bigfoot. There's a t-shirt for you. So he's filming a docuseries for an A&E entitled The Low Files. I've heard of that. This is a show where Rob and his two sons, Matthew and Owen, explore mysterious phenomenon across the country. This is another one that takes place kind of close to home. They were going through the Ozark Mountains. Uh-oh. And they were looking they for, in my backyard now. for Bigfoot. He and his sons were camping to investigate what the locals were calling the wood ape. I think is their version of Bigfoot, which, you know, you can call it whatever yeah, you want. Many names. He said in the middle of the night, something began to approach their camp. It was loud. It was big. Lowe said he was laying on the ground, and he really believed he was going to be killed. He said this thing sounded very, very unfriendly. Uh, he added, I'm fully aware this makes me sound crazy, like a Hollywood kook. So, I mean, he gets it. He knows. He's but, owning it. But I, I found that kind of interesting, and I'm sure there's more to be seen in the episode of the show. So Makes me want to go watch it. Again, the, they, they didn't go into a lot of detail. In the story. That was sort Obviously, of, he didn't get murdered yeah. by Bigfoot. Yeah, obviously, Not he didn't that get killed. Time. But that was sort of the point. It was a short little deal, and I'm sure it was meant to get you to watch the episode. So, little teaser, and it worked. Well, my last story I have is um, with Kevin Sorbo, probably best known for his role in uh, Hercules, uh, accompanied by Xena, the warrior princess. He's kind of gone off the rails, though, lately. I've got to be honest. Yeah, (laughs) he's a little out there. Uh, But Kevin was finishing up his last year at the University of Minnesota. Now, he was dating uh, a very beautiful young lady at the time, and he got a job at a local uh, club, kind of a bar, to help uh, make ends meet. He got stressed out, he said, from dealing with all the people and in particular, all the energy all night long. And from what I could tell, he often would like, you know, collect the entry fees, kind of a bouncer type. Bouncer doorman. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you can envision, you get some pretty rude people and gets to escort people in, take their money and sometimes gets to escort them, you know, out. (laughs) But he said it would really stress him out. So he really enjoyed, and he said, I almost did it religiously every night. After work, he would drive uh, before the sun would come up with his windows rolled down around a local lake, and it would just kind of help him unwind and ground himself to help him get ready to go to sleep. Now, one particular night after a long day at the club, his girlfriend was out with him, and it was a hot summer morning, again, before the sun had come up, but it was already that hot, humid temperature. They get in the car, and they drive out to the lake. Uh, Again, the sun not yet up, so there was not a car on the road. He said, literally, it was just us for miles and miles. They enjoyed the nice ride. They enjoyed talking. They had the radio off, you know, listening to the the peep frogs and the crickets and and the sounds of the water. As they were driving, they came around a corner with the the lights of the car still on. Kevin saw a woman walking at a very slow pace uh, at about 100 yards away. Now, there was something he said obviously looked odd about her. As they got closer, they, they both seen this woman, had dark hair and she was wearing a wedding gown. Kevin turned to his girlfriend and said, okay, 
you're looking at that, right? And she nodded and said, yeah, I see her. She also saw the figure. They commented how strange it was that she would be out at this time of night walking on a road by herself in a wedding gown. Now, as they got just yards away, much closer, it became evident that she was drenched from head to toe, apparently soaking wet with water. Now, it kind of freaked them both out because they thought, well, maybe she had fallen into the water. They wasn't sure what the story was. Maybe someone had, you know, basically thrown her out out here. So as they are passing her, they slow down and the woman turns and looks at them, kind of back at them as they pass right into Kevin's eyes. Now, he says, it was mesmerizing. It was eerily weird. I was drawn in to that incredible, sad look. He said, I felt as if she was asking for help, but she didn't speak any words while the window was down. She literally passed within probably two feet of my face. Now, she turned her head again and just began to continue walking down the road. Kevin looked up in the rearview mirror and the figure had totally vanished. Now, he slammed on the brakes, stopped the car, and he looked over at his girlfriend and said, I've got to go look for her. You, you saw her. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, she confirms I saw her. So she opens the car door up. I think kind of stands there by the car, but she doesn't go too far. But Kevin, you know, leaves the door open. The car's running, comes on, you know, back down the road. And, and he's calling out, you know, I'm here. Can I help you? Who are you? You know, all this. He comes back after a short period of time. And the girlfriend is back in the car at this point in time and says, what happened? And he said, she's just gone. And Again, they're both confirming, okay, we did see her. You saw her in a wedding gown? Yes. She was drenching wet? Yes. Did you hear anything? No. She never said any words. So they were just trying to, you know, cope with what they had saw. Now, Kevin returned to work the next day and he shared his story. He was very open about it. And one of his fellow employees, another young lady, he noticed turned extremely pale uh, after he was telling the story. And after he finished, after a short time, she grabbed Kevin by the arm and escorted him outside. And she immediately said, I've seen her too. That's the ghost of White Rock Lake. Kevin said he was startled, yet almost, you know, relieved to some degree that someone else had seen this woman in a wedding dress. And he was starting to question his own insanity. And he asked the girl, what did you see? And she described to a T, dark haired woman in a wet wedding gown, very sad face. And he goes, that's okay. That's exactly what we saw as well. Now, the story goes on about a couple that was holding their wedding out by the lake under a gazebo. The music was playing. The wedding was well attended. The bride and the groom were dancing after the wedding. And she was asked to be excused for a few moments when she saw someone in the crowd that seemed to motion her. The new husband didn't think much about it, thought it was probably an old friend, and said, yeah, sure, hon, I'll catch up with you later. So she turned, she left the dance, and and some people did say that they saw her out on the dock talking to this man with this oversized brim hat. And uh, they said they even saw some commotion, not pushing or shoving, but like finger pointing and stuff as they were talking. And one uh, attender of the wedding said she even believed it could have been possibly an ex-boyfriend that had confronted her. And it was speculated, but uh, some believe they got into an argument ending uh, with this mystery man possibly killing her. Now, the official cause documented uh, in the local newspaper simply stated that the bride uh, drowned in the lake and was found floating face down. It would stand to reason, as far as ghost stories go, the bride had stuck around seeking her husband, maybe wondering what happened to her or why he did not come and help rescue her. 
It went on from the happiest day of her life to literally the end of her life in a matter of moments, which you could again see why it would confuse a a ghost and they might want to hang around the lake. But to this day, that is a rumor of the ghost of White Rock Lake. Now, when you told me the celebrities you were picking, I thought, you know, you were going back a little ways to the (laughs) 80s and 90s there. Not as much as you, though. Uh, Yeah, my next story is from Jackie Gleason. Who? Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) If you're unfamiliar with Jackie Gleason, he was star of the old sitcom The Honeymooners, which probably doesn't help you much. And you may have heard his familiar bang pow to the moon catchphrase. But um, allegedly, he was invited by Richard Nixon to see proof of extraterrestrial life. Did not know that. His second wife wrote an article two years before she died. And here's a quote. I'll never forget the night in 1973 my famous husband came home, slumped white-faced in an armchair, and spilled out the incredible story to me. You've got my attention, Bill. Apparently, Gleason had been escorted through Homestead Air Force Base in Florida, where he was shown four little embalmed aliens with small bald heads and disproportionately large ears. Now, Jackie, you know, apparently he'd had a huge collection of books on the paranormal and, and, and UFOs and things like that when he passed. And people say Nixon didn't really believe in the UFO phenomenon. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't believe that Nixon was really a full believer here. Well, there's no proof that this incident ever actually happened. There's no proof. Neither Beverly or Jackie ever confirmed or denied the story after it was published. But Nixon's official diary does confirm that he did have a meeting with Gleason in Florida in 1973. Well, there you go. So. That's something. Now, the last little blurb I have here is sort of shared by multiple celebrities, and I found it kind of interesting. I stumbled across this not that long ago, uh, but I just found it very interesting. Now, if you don't know who John Constantine is, if you're a comic book fan, <laughs> the comic Hellblazer, uh, had a limited TV series. I think he's been in some of the animated movies, but John Constantine is sort of a paranormal detective. I believe he's got some magic skill, uh, but he's a comic book character, right? Many who have worked on the comics claim to have encountered John Constantine in real life. The real John Constantine. Now, the first time this was related was by Alan Moore in Wizard Magazine. If you've ever seen Alan Moore, this guy is... Great work. Looks like... Well, his, his comics are amazing. Uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, V for oh. Vendetta, uh, all, all the, from hell. And he himself looks like a crazy old wizard. Yeah, I was going to say, you're talking about his physical appearance. Yeah, he looks yeah. like a crazy old wizard. But this, this, is a, this is what he related to Wizard Magazine. I was in Westminster in London, and I was sitting at a sandwich bar. All of a sudden, up the stairs came John Constantine. Now, John Constantine's look in the comics is based on the musician Sting. He says it wasn't Sting. It was John Constantine. He was wearing the trench coat, a shortcut. He looked, no, he didn't, he didn't even look exactly like Sting. Uh, he looked exactly like John Constantine. He looked at me. He stared me straight in the eyes. He smiled, nodded almost conspiratorially and then just walked off around the corner to the other part of the snack bar. I sat there and I thought, should I go around that corner and see if he's really there, or should I just eat my sandwich and leave? I opted for the latter. I thought it was the safest. I'm not making any claims to anything. I'm just saying this happened. Strange little story. Now, that would be weird, right? I mean, sure. And Alan Moore, you know, he is a little weird. A little eccentric. He's a little weird. But since then, other writers, specifically Jamie Delano, Peter Milligan, and Brian Azzarello, have come forward saying, I've seen John Constantine in real life. Who have all obviously worked on the comic Yeah, they were all writers for the comic. They all say in each case that none of them spoke to him. Not sure what would happen if they did. 
but they do insist that they actually saw John Constantine in real life. See, I don't think I could resist that, regardless of the outcome. If I'm a writer or working with that, and I think that I see the full embodiment, physical entity of the person I'm representing, do I take that as, hey, you're doing a great job, or... Hey, we need to talk. You ain't got all this quite right. I believe Alan Moore was pressed and they said, well, could it just been a cosplayer? And he said, no, he said he felt as if this was the the Constantine. Yeah. So, and I I thought that was kind of weird. I stumbled across that story not too long ago and I figured this would be a good place to mention it. So as we talk about wrapping up and and, in the last of these celebrity stories, of course, you know, our, our new little feature here, it's time for the nightmare headline. In October 2022, around Halloween, Hollywood fully embraces the whole paranormal and ghostly hauntings of celebrity ghosts. In October of this last year in Los Angeles, the sunny shining and thermometer reading 80 degrees, it's hard to think of the city of angels as haunted. Yet the ghosts of film stars from Marilyn Monroe, Montgomery Clift, as well as TV icons from Ozzie Nelson of Ozzie and Harriet, Lucille Ball are all said to wander the hotel, hotels, homes, and sets of Hollywood. But in this past year, 2022 as I stated, in particular, the Roosevelt Hotel opened its doors to guests, living and dead alike. The 12-story Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel is located on 7000 Hollywood Boulevard. It's been the choice of Hollywood for over 90 years. Built back in 1927, the Roosevelt hosted the very first Oscars, back on May 16th, 1929. So it would, you know, kind of stand to reason with all the popular actors and actresses that have roamed its hallways that some might have decided to hang around a bit longer. The hotel is considered one of the most haunted of all of Hollywood. Now, none other than Marilyn Monroe is a celebrity guest that seems to very, very frequently visit this hotel. Her image is often seen by staff and visitors looking back at them from mirrors or reflections with a rather sad look. Now, during her career, Marilyn often stayed on the second floor in one particular cabana room, which now bears her name. It looks out to the pool down below. Now, funny story. The maids and staff members often cover the mirrors in this room as they perform their routine duties because they feel that Marilyn is spying and watching them. Now, Monroe is called the hardest-working ghost in all of Hollywood. Her face also supposedly appears in a mirror, reflections <laughs> at the carousel on the Santa Monica Pier. The childless actress went there in disguise, it is said many times, to watch families at play, which is a bit creepy itself, but imagine being spied on by Marilyn Monroe in ghost form. I, don't know, I might be okay with it. Might be okay with it. <laughs> it's Marilyn Monroe. So she gets around. My headline is from SF Gate on November 12th, 2021. A little older than I was hoping for, but I sort of felt I should flip the script a little bit. We're talking about the celebrity, celebrities encountering the paranormal, right? Well, I wanted to talk about the normal encountering the celebrity. Ooh. The headline is, Meet the Bigfoot Experts Who Took Jeff Goldblum Sasquatch Hunting on Mount Shasta for Disney+. Plus. <laughs> What a I great mean, advertisement. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I've not seen this yet. My, my wife watched a couple of the episodes, but I didn't know he went Bigfoot hunting. I got to go watch that one. So Greg Newkirk said one day he's sitting there and, and, and just the most unbelievable thing happens. And he says, this is not real. This cannot possibly be real. 
and he didn't encounter Bigfoot that day. He and his wife, professional paranormal investigators, were being asked by Jeff Goldblum to take him Bigfoot hunting for his Disney Plus show. I mean, how crazy is that? That is crazy. So Newkirk said, at first glance, no matter what, most people always think of the existence of Bigfoot as weird and strange. But the more you actually dig into Bigfoot and the legends and the experiences that people have had, you realize that Bigfoot is much weirder than you originally thought. <laughs> these, these guys are not your typical cryptozoologists. They don't track. They can't identify, you know, scat. They don't put their finger in the air to, to see which way the wind is blowing. They take a, a different multidimensional approach to looking for Bigfoot and combine many areas of study, including ghost activity, alien abductions, and other, you know, cryptozoology creatures. Now, the show producers wanted to film the show in Southern California, but the Newkirks convinced them they had to go north. There aren't a lot of Bigfoot sightings in Southern California. They're more in the northern northern. part of the state. And Greg said, they had us sitting in the woods on this fallen redwood tree, and we see some rustling in the distance, and there's a camera crew, and then we see it, just this tall, tan creature. Literally, this mythical creature comes out of the woods. None other than Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) Because think, I mean, it's Jeff Goldblum, right? Now, they were starstruck. They could barely speak when Jeff introduced himself. They said they they would have been less tongue-tied if they'd actually encountered Bigfoot, Bigfoot at that moment. Yep, I was thinking the same thing. And they spent two days in the woods with Jeff Goldblum. They used all the usual techniques, the tree knocking, the vocalizations, pheromones, all that. And they said he was very open to the entire experience and the weirdness of it, which you got to imagine Jeff Goldblum and weird. I mean, that's yeah. hand in hand. They said he, he sat around the fire with them at night as they talked about their different stories, ghost stories and alien stories. What a story for the and history he just, books. He just, you know, he loved it. He thoroughly enjoyed it. And after they were all done, they said he asked if he could be an honorary Newkirk. So I would be f- floored if, you know, you know, Jeff Goldblum somehow wanted to be associated with me. Yeah. So, and, and I have sort of a celebrity weakness for Jeff Goldblum. I mean, I, I love the guy. I've seen most of the movies he's been in. I like watching interviews. He's such a quirky individual and, and apparently brilliant by all accounts. The guy's just amazing. But I couldn't imagine spending two days Bigfoot hunting. We were out here Jeff camping Goldblum. in the woods, and then Jeff Goldblum came through the forest. <laughs> again, if Bigfoot walked out of the woods, you'd be less, you know, again, you'd be more starstruck by Jeff Goldblum than you would be Bigfoot. Right, right. So... Uh, I just I thought that was a neat little way to flip the script on some of that other I like you it. know the celebrities seeing ghosts. I wanted to give a shout out. We had a uh, customer of Ravensloft, a uh, good friend of ours, Robert Marsh, who came in and I shared used to work with Robert. Yes, he still speaks fondly of you, by the way. Well, um, I'm he surprised. is <laughs> he is a substitute teacher uh, here in our Lebanon really? school district. He is, right. and he informed me that uh, we needed to do a shout out for another teacher in particular at the Lebanon High School, Sarah Kohler. And for what I, what I am told, she teaches a mythology and folklore class. And they didn't have a class like that when I was in high school. That's exactly what I told Robert. It's like, where were these classes when I was in school? <laughs> the most we got to do was dissect a frog or something. But she has used at least one of our podcasts in uh, the classroom. And uh, I believe it was on the Loveland Frog. Really? Because she was trying to find more of the obscure, not so common. Fascinating. So a big shout out and thank you to uh, our teacher here in Lebanon High School, Sarah Kohler, and her entire club or class for the mythology and folklore. I'm glad to hear this is, has a practical use. Uh, she said um, possibly she, now that she knows we exist, maybe using several of our episodes uh, for filler in her class. So, awesome. hey, that was that was really cool. So, thank you very, yeah, very much. That's that's great. I like to hear that. That's, that's fascinating. 
But again, we hope that you've enjoyed yet another installation of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Be careful out there. Thanks for listening. Now, again, this one's another one that's kind of close to comb. Kind of close to your comb. Yeah. <laughs> I do need to run up front. We have a shout out to do, but I got to get her name oh, okay. up front. But we'll do the wrap up. You don't have anything else, right? Well, if you're going to do the shout out, okay. don't you want to we'll do just that before up. the wrap up? Just add yeah. Sarah right down information. Run up there real quick. Boobla, boobla, boobla. Bobble. So it's just me by myself. Eric's up front. I want to say that I'm being held captive in the back of a store, uh, forced to do a podcast against my will. And Eric is totally a cool guy. And I just want to get that on record as saying that not any of the rest of that stuff. That was all a joke. I'm not sure what I walked in on. That's going in the outtake reel, buddy. <clears throat> okay. you, you wait till you hear that one. We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, Lebanon, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon. And also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for again supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.